podcast is brought to you by Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome all you QT faithful to your sixth Tarantino Bible study, where each month we sit down and take an intense look at one of the major scenes from our movie of the month. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to once again welcome back one half of the duo that is the podcast nobody asked for, Lord Ian Harris, and together we will be taking a deeper dive into the gospel of Tarantino as we turn to the book of From Dust Till Dawn, chapter one. The convenience store shootout scene. Welcome back, Lord Harry's, and may Tarantino be with you always. And may Tarantino be with you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, you're back. I mean, you are, as we record, uh, the episode that you and I did for Pulp Fiction is out and doing well. I It's, yep. it's a very enjoyable episode. I hope people enjoyed it. Yeah, I'll, I'll take credit for that rather than <laughs> it's it completely being all, one of the best films you. ever made. Yeah. Also, <laughs> uh... By the time people listen to this, this will be the second time they'll have heard. I took your little uh, fucks given jingle you made me, and that is now ah. in front of all of them. Well, from that point on, and I'm still yeah. pretty sure you're telling us to fuck ourselves, but that is perfectly fine. It does feel like that oh, works uh, in there. <laughs> it's just, uh, I just like hearing the fucks from Pulp Fiction, really. <laughs> but it was, I, I, when I was listening to the Pulp Fiction episode when it came out, I was, for a brief moment, I thought, it was like, why is, why is our jingle? Pl-? And then it was like, oh, wait, hang on. This is actually on the recording. Yes. I'm yeah. honored to have the stupid little jingles I come up with, like, spread out from our podcast. It inspired me. I don't know if you heard the birthday episode to make my own mm-hmm. birthday song for Quentin Tarantino. It is beautiful. <laughs> it's funny. I was making that song, and just the way I put the beat put together, also, it just came into my head, like, happy birthday. And then it's your fucking, I was like, oh, wait, I think I got a song. It was just that quick of an earworm that just, I was like, all right, here we go. We're just going to repeat the words. That's what they do nowadays. And we're going to do it three times and we're going to have a fun time. Yeah. Like one one thing I, I will warn you just publicly is creating stuff like that is really addictive. So like, I think after every episode of the podcast, nobody asked for at some point in it, we would have gone, 
I think this needs a jingle, and then I'll go off and make a jingle. <laughs> so we now have a peek behind the curtain jingle. Is a new yeah. one. We have uh, our official fuck Tom Brady jingle, which required the input of I think like eighteen different people. I almost sent you a because you asked for one, and I didn't get a chance to send it to you. I was going to say fuck Tom Brady is amazing. I was going to send you <laughs> that reverse of it, but I knew you cut it off. You would have needed to find somebody new for this episode. <laughs> you don't know that uh, I'm not necessarily a Tom Brady lover. All right, so I. I hated him for 20 years. Mm. And then he joined my team out of the fucking blue, which felt like someone was playing Madden and was just fucking pranking me. Because it was 2020. Like, it was literally a week after the outbreak happened and we shut everything down here in America. I see come across my phone that Tom Brady has decided to join the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I was like, get the fuck out of here. Because I didn't know how I felt about it. My son said, well, how do you feel about it? He goes, what if he, you know, what if, and this is like before the year started. He goes, what if mm. they, you know, he leads you to the Super Bowl and you win it? And I was of two minds. I was like, well, I'd love us to win another Super Bowl finally it's been 18 years and then I was also but that would mean he would have a seventh now I'm all in I'm like I'm like he needs his eighth and we're gonna do it again this year like it's ridiculous how quickly I went from like fuck Tom Brady to like fuck Tom Brady is amazing you know when he joins your team and I know one of you I think your, your good friend Graham who will be on this podcast uh, shortly in a couple of months he's a Vikings fan if I'm not mistaken uh, I think no. I hear him say he's a Vikings are you the Vikings I, fan I am the Vikings fan he is the Ravens fan but imagine if Tom Brady joined your team. Because I can tell you, as we, as we sidetrack quickly on this podcast, you don't understand what it was, I guess, what New England fans went through for 20 years and how much they loved him until he, he plays for your team and you go from, fuck, we're done, to, like, we have a shot. Like, it's a bizarre feeling. Like, I can, we yeah, trailed 24-3 to three in that, or 27-3, to or whatever it was, 24-3 to three or 27-3 in that playoff game, and I never felt like we were out of it, whereas when we had Jameis Winston just yeah. as our quarterback, I was like, oh, we're going to get blown by 42. Yeah. It's a different mindset to have someone on your squad. What, it doesn't matter what sport it is. It could be hockey, soccer, or sorry, your football, uh, whatever it is. But when that player you hate joins your team and you suddenly realize why you hated them because of how good they were, and now you like you get to see that magic and you're kind of like, it's hard. It's hard to swallow. It's almost, you know, yeah, it's like, it's like I, having um, a, a, an enemy who saves your life with a kidney transplant. You know what I mean? Like you suddenly <laughs> go, that guy's not that bad after all. I mean, he's a pretty good person. So every, every year I put on what I call my far too early Super Bowl bet. And as soon as the Brady news came through with the Buccaneers, I put money down on the Buccaneers to win the Super Bowl. And this was like in March before the Super Bowl. And then it came to the Super Bowl. It was like, I think I won like 300 quid off of a 20 quid bet. It was great. Yeah, there you go. But watching the Super Bowl, I was in so two minds. It was like, <laughs> I, I don't know which I would prefer. <laughs> <laughs> the money. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Getting another one. Yeah, we have. Uh, we are. We are a, a podcast duo on the podcast nobody asked for of not Brady fans, and we have the jingle to prove it. It's great. Amazing jingles, and uh, and I figured you can't use it much in your show because it's specific yeah, yeah. towards me and to Paul Fiction. So I was like, you know, I've got a good. You know, he gave it to me, so we're we're, we're going to use this, and I and I uh, yeah. greatly appreciate it. I, I I feel like if a jingle is created about you, you're allowed to use it. I think that's how copyright like works <laughs> so it's you know there would be a jingle with without the i'm the kind of person who's so looking uh, for any kind of publicity so even if it's negative publicity like there's oh, no such thing as bad it's publicity you know what i mean it's, uh, imagine it's, two it's, podcasts it's, fighting over a jingle and people are like well, is that a, is this like an east coast west coast rappers <laughs> <laughs> we're the new tupac and biggie we're just we're going at it and now it's time to open your tarantino bibles to the book of from dust till dawn chapter we are here to discuss the amazing opening scene, the convenience store shootout in the beginning of this 
crime movie that, again, takes a hard turn out of fucking blue, and suddenly we are in a vampire movie midway through the film to the end. And it is glorious on both accounts. Like... I oh, yeah. loved it yeah. when I first saw the film anyways. You know, you're sitting there and, like, you know, you've seen five of, or four of Tarantino's films, you know, depending on how you look at them. And most of them are crime. You're like, all right, here we go. It's a crime movie. It's the 90s. In fact, Quentin Tarantino wrote the script as a way to showcase the talents of a special effects company called K&B. In return, K&B agreed to provide the special effects for the ear scene in Reservoir Dogs, free of charge. We got George Clooney, who at the time was known more as an ER doctor on the show ER. Yes, yeah. From Dust Till Dawn was George Clooney's breakout Role. It was the catalyst for him to make the jump from TV actor to film star. He's he's fantastic, and you're sitting there, and then all of a sudden, bam! Halfway through the movie, we get a sexy dance. Someone sucks on some toes. Next thing you know, it's vampires, and you're kind of like, "What? What just happened there?" You know, like it was a very yeah, surprising. Did, yeah. did I fall asleep? I know, <laughs> but it works. Like it's that's the thing is like, and through the mind of Tarantino and with the help of Robert Rodriguez, it just fucking worked. Quentin Tarantino was originally set to direct the movie, but decided not to so that he could focus more on the screenplay and his role as Richard Gecko. So he gave the script to makeup effects technician Robert Kurtzman to direct. When he couldn't commit, Tarantino showed the script to his best friend, Robert Rodriguez, who eagerly signed on. But the great setup is the opening of this film, where we get to meet the great Earl McGraw, played by the amazing and now late Michael Parks. And Earl McGraw is oh, one of shit. my... I've, he passed a couple I, sorry, years ago. I forgot he passed. Yeah. Yes. It's very disappointing. But luckily his son, who a lot of people forget, James Park, who has played who's son number one in the other movies that Earl McGraw makes an appearance in, but he's also been OB, the uh, stagecoach driver in uh, The Hateful Eight. He was also one of the plantation workers, enforcers in Django Unchained. So I mean, you know, he's made in a couple of yeah. Tarantino's movies. So which is great. I mean, I like him. He's a great actor. He's great as Ob. But Earl fucking McGraw, what a character we get! And this is our in- interesting enough, as I said in the main podcast, this is our introduction, and it's also his death. So it's <laughs> like because then we see him again in Kill Bill, and we see him again in Death Proof, and you're just kind of like, uh, oh, I thought he was. So it's a very cool when we got to see him again. But when the movie starts, Earl's driving up. So I have a question for you, because I'd never thought about it until recently, now getting ready for these episodes. How the fuck does he miss their car on the other side of the road when he pulls in to the gas station to start this movie and this scene? It is sitting. I mean, and it's not like inconspicuous because they are driving a 1968 Mercury Cougar XR7 <laughs> in Texas on a dirt road. So it's a very, not you know, it's like they're driving a Honda Civic and it could blend into traffic. Traffic or people wouldn't notice it. It's a very specific yeah. car. It might as well have been Stuntman Mike's fucking car. You know what I mean? It might as well have been the death proof car. It's that recognizable. And yet he pulls in and it's, I mean, it's fucking sitting there. He doesn't see it. How does, how is that possible for Mr. Earl McGraw, our great Texas Ranger, to miss? So I wasn't, when you asked that, I, I was, I was about to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but. I think I know what the answer is. He needed a piss. Okay, yes, he did. And some Jack Daniels. <laughs> like, the, 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 the amount of stuff that I will completely ignore and not realize when I desperately need the toilet is, uh, you know, well, like missing <laughs> the car of wanted fugitives outside the gas station I'm at. But I'm going to say the answer is he needed a piss. So he was just focused 
just focused on getting to his uh, morning morning tradition because they said it's like a tradition. He goes. I in think there, it's afternoon by this time that he uses the yeah, toilet. Because I think yeah. he again over here in America, some of the shifts that, of the twenty four hour shift cycles is seven to three, three to eleven, eleven to seven, and that is mm. also the title of a Kenny Chesney country song. You shouldn't be surprised, but that is the title. <laughs> uh, so I because we know when they had that conversation, I think he was coming off his shift, so he's late afternoon. So yeah, and then we've had the whole big mm. shootout that they discuss. But it is interesting because yeah. rewatching it for this today, I noticed there are two other things that he misses that are one is just funny, and the second time is you're like, that should have been a signal for him. But when he walks into the store, and I noticed this just recently, there are two blow up sex dolls right inside the door. I don't know what kind of <laughs> convenience store we're in in Texas, but they seem to be just selling nothing but popcorn, it seems like. And we'll get into that too. It's like there's popcorn, some chips, some magazines, <laughs> and blow up sex dolls, which is weird because. Because normally that's sold in like a sex shop, at least here in America. But to have it in a Texas, a liquor store, a convenience store, is so weird. I just wonder if that was just like a funny thing that Robert Rodriguez and Tarantino wanted to put in. But watch it again. When he walks through the door, there are two blow-up sex dolls to his right. Kind of near where Tarantino and the one girl are over by the magazines. Yeah, I did not notice. I, I watched it a couple of times today just to kind of, you know, make, make sure I was fully reacquainted with it. And I missed the sex dolls. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe that's why he missed the car outside. <laughs> just like walking up through the window. It's like, are those, are those blow up sex dolls? It could be. We're talking, those are the old, old school mm. ones. The ones you just blow up and they've got the weird mouth. <laughs> just, uh, yeah. It looks like a really bad plastic not balloon the, anyway. Not, not like... the creepy ones that are now like the source of documentaries <laughs> where people take them out to restaurants and shit like that. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the ones you, the ones you get on like a, on a stag do or a, something like that. It's, yes, uh, yeah, yes. the ones that get yes. tied to yes. people. <laughs> yes, where some unfortunate person has to actually blow them up with their mouth like uh. an old fashioned beach ball. <laughs> yes, and it's made of the old beach ball stuff too. So I don't know who's who's having relations with this doll and why, because it doesn't seem like there's anything exciting about it. But yes, next time you get a chance to watch it, there are two as he walks in the door. <laughs> right to the right, like right inside the door. What the fuck is happening? Why is this even here? Uh, now, for those of you who don't know, this actually was one of the last scenes shot in the film, which was surprising oh. to me. I actually thought it was one of the first ones that you but no. And one of the reasons, listen to the commentary, is they spent about five weeks shooting. So the first things they shot was the hotel, yeah. which is after this scene. And then they were five weeks in the bar. And then this is the last thing. And one of the reasons Rodriguez liked it this way was he felt that it gave both Richie and Seth, both George Clooney and Tarantino's characters, had now been the Gecko brothers for six weeks. You know, they had more of a camaraderie and all the stuff they'd gone through, you know, because you can kind of hide yeah. some of the chemistry yeah. when you're doing a lot of action stuff. So they'd already built this chemistry, so when we get to this major scene where we get to learn how fucking useless and dangerous Richie really is, and then we get, you know, Seth to become the badass. It really feels uh, unique and genuine because these two have now been playing brothers for five weeks, and even though this is the opening it's not shot till the end well that, that makes a lot because one of the kind of my main takeaways from watching just the scene out of context um because i've seen from dust till dawn so many times i was gonna say one of my favorite vampire movies that i'm on a podcast talking about one of the scenes that doesn't have vampires in but it's <laughs> in a nine minute i think it's a nine minute scene yeah it's about nine minutes you yeah, learn it's... absolutely everything you need to know about the gecko brothers you know that they're on yes. the run 
um, you know that Richie is the a, loose, a cannon. loose cannon psychopath. Um, Seth is more intelligent, but is also fucking insane. And you also learn that he's willing to give his brother the benefit of the doubt just to either out of a sense of like calming him down and just clearly loves his brother. And you get that from just this opening. I wonder because, uh, you know, obviously those people listening to this now should have already listened to the podcast before and should have seen the movie because this is 26 years down the road. <laughs> yeah. So anything I'm about to say should so have But when we realize that he's a sex offender, you know, because uh, in scenes later, <laughs> once he gets back, we see the whole television scene. We finally he's a sex offender. Then we obviously learn about what happens at the hotel. And he's just a fucking mess. I wonder if something that happened to them early in childhood, maybe Seth feels bad for it, like he couldn't protect his brother from. Maybe he was sexually abused too. Uh, you know, again, there's no, there's no backstory yeah. or context. But just going through the way that Seth is willing to literally put themselves at risk for his brother. His brother is the wild card. His brother is the loose end. His brother is the one thing that will eventually get them arrested or killed, in my opinion, if things in the events don't go the way they end up doing. I wonder sometimes if the reason that Seth is that way is because something that we never know about, but it's just their backstory, you know, he feels like he's got to protect his brother, even though he knows he shouldn't. Even though, like, if he was, like, just clear of mind, he'd be like, Richie's the problem. I've got to get rid of, yeah. rid of Richie or get loose of Richie because otherwise he's going to get us hemmed up. We're going to get caught. Yeah, that, that or something, like, he knows his brother is fucked up and he's trying to not protect the world from his brother, but realizing that his, you know, if his brother's out in the world, shit's going to go down. So he has to keep hold of him and make sure he's okay and you know may maybe even like a degree of you know he'll be fine I, I could fix him as long as you know i'm his brother i can hang around him kind of thing but or a lot of the relationship stuff you you just gather from just this scene so it makes a lot of sense yes. now that you said it that they would film it at the end where they can kind of learn all of that stuff as they're kind of going along yeah because now they're going to bring in now george Clooney will have even though like he would have had references early on but now that he's gotten to work he knows what richie does later on so now he can kind of put that in his mind as if richie's done this yeah. before so he's got that kind of context of what richie's capable of doing yeah and knows it you know and kind of shields him from it when probably he wouldn't let anyone else go to get away with this kind of shit yeah no exactly and, and he doesn't let other people get away with that shit. What, one thing I think that is forgotten in any kind of, I think, film where you have usually two gangster brothers and one of them's a psychopath, you usually forget that the other one is kind of also a psychopath. Because <laughs> yes. I, always, I always forget just how... Crawl or insane is a wrong word, but like it was Seth's idea not to skip right to the end of the scene, but it was Seth's idea to shoot the bottles out. Yes. And it was just like, oh, okay, so you're both you're both actually fucked up. It's just the other one <laughs> is so much more fucked up. I think the fair way to put it is Richie's a psycho, Seth is a sociopath. I think that I think that's fair. Yeah. Seth will do what he has to do hmm. and he won't feel bad about it because he feels that's the, the ends are gonna justify yeah. the means. Where Richie is just like Whatever way the wind blows him at that moment, he's going to fucking do. He'll rape and kill a lady even though he knows he's not supposed to. He'll make up something that happens in the thing where he thinks the guy's talking and he'll end up shooting at people. Like He'll cause his own disasters where Seth will act and be cold as ice when he has to. But at the end of the day, you know, like you said, to jump the thing, they were just supposed to get some a kid a fucking map. That's all he was supposed to get. And it ends up turning into this big fucking to-do where Seth would have gone in, got the map, and left, and that would have been the end of it. He brings Richie along, and Richie's going to fuck it all up, you know? So they definitely have a different dichotomy for sure. Yeah. But I guess we'll jump back before we get to them. Earl McGraw, we'll talk about him because he doesn't last very long in the scene. 
But again, like you said, we get to learn a lot about Earl too, and maybe some of the things he misses out because he's a contradiction in and of himself. Like yeah, he talks about you know how burritos will kill you. The only thing they're good for is hippies on weed. And then as soon as he says that, like basically he's saying like hippies on weed, bunch of pieces of shit, low lives. He's like, but while you're at it, can you grab me that bottle of Jack Daniels because I'm gonna get fucking tanked tonight. And he's drinking a beer and he's gonna get back in his car. Yeah, that great like Texan awful the swagger. You know what I mean? I'm a bad motherfucker kind of thing. But it leads me to something that we talked about in the main podcast. It's such a great conversation. It's awful conversation. I'm not gonna lie. Like now, 26 years later, it would not be written. It probably wouldn't be said except for maybe my guest Pat Fournier's thought. Maybe Tarantino will get away with it again, but it's the mentally handicapped conversation yeah. where we talk about the young boy who was working the grill at one of the local diners. <laughs> it's a horrible, horrible conversation. I rewatched it again today, and I was like, when Tarantino wrote this, so I do some writing. Again, I'm not Tarantino, but one of the things that's a pet peeve of mine in writing is when putting the same word almost in the same sentence or paragraph. You know? yeah. So instead of saying, you know, road, you want to say like something else, like the, a path, or, you know what I mean? Street, like you don't want to say road. And road yeah, again, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So he found every slur about mental handicap people and found a way to like put it in differently. Like he never says the same thing twice. So, you know, I'm not going to say what they says, watch the scene, but like he says all these things. And I was just amazed, not because he said it, but I was like, he found a way to say it like four or five different ways. He brought up the thesaurus on how do you disparage mentally handicapped people. He was like, okay, we're going to say this. We're going to say that. I'm going to say this. It's just like this crazy epitaph. And then I love at one point he's like, you know, she should have uh, like hit him over the head and sold the milk. But then he's like, well, she's also got a cross to bear. It's like he has this like empathy, but he doesn't. Like he goes back and forth. You know, he's like, fuck this kid. He made me sick. She should have killed this kid. And then all of a sudden he's like, well, you know, I'm not going to take her restaurant from her. I mean, she's got a cross to bear. You know, it's like yeah. he has like empathy, and yet not at the same time. Yeah, and, and like you said, but even having having the character talk like that, also then you know, it's a scene about learning about people. You immediately make a snap judgment. Yeah, you immediately make a snap judgment of him as well. It's like, oh, okay, so this is the kind of person we're dealing with, the kind of person who is going to go drink driving to go home to get tanked. Yes. While in, in yes. uniform. Yep. While if they come across, yeah. you know, it's kind of, it's eerie, but it gives a real look at American policing, mm. where like if you kill one of their own, it's like there's no trial or jury. We're going to just, yeah. it's going to be t- handled Texas style, you know, we'll take care of them, take care of them boys. Yeah. But that scene could not, could not be rewritten today. It could not, it would not fly today. You would not have that. And as I said to my guest, you know, Tarantino gets all this shit about the use of the N-word, which g- good or bad, you know, we, we've had yeah. that discussion, how, how it gets used when it should or shouldn't be used. But Everyone forgets about the scene that he wrote. I don't think people even remember this is even a part of the, the, the movie. Because it opens up, and then all of a sudden everything goes crazy, and you forget about it. Well, I wonder... But it's one of those scenes where, like, I don't know that it would... You know, most people would try to try to cancel it nowadays if they really paid attention to it. I wonder if people would have had more of an issue if he'd written those lines for himself. If it was... Uh, That's if fair. If it was Richie's character saying that. Because then, again, I think that I think the issue I have sometimes with... So you can write for a character without believing what the character... Like, agreeing with what the character is saying, right? Agree, and that's what he says about the yeah. N-word. You know, that's what he says. It's like, this is what this character would say. I'm not saying it to be gratuitous. This is how I feel this yeah. character in this moment would speak. Yeah, and, and that's fine. Obviously, there's, there's nuances to things. There's always kind of a discussion. But, like, if I was to write a horror movie about... A serial killer 
It doesn't mean I agree with what the character's going to be saying. Like, it's too completely, you know, it's just the creative world, right? But I, th- yes, I think some people have the problem, and I mean, I'll, I'll hold my hand up to this as well, um, especially in Pulp Fiction. Sometimes it comes across like he wrote it so he could say it. Like, you get what I mean? Like, yeah, well, like we talked about that scene. Yeah, yep. it, it's, mm-hmm. okay. Jimmy Dimmick. And it's the same with this. I wonder if he'd written it for Richie's character to say, if the resulting wouldn't be, well, it's just, it's the character saying it. It would be, well, Tarantino's written this for a Tarantino character to say, and it's suddenly an entirely different conversation than what is basically a piece of shit cop character. Yes, and like you said, it's weird, because we we learned that this is who Earl McGraw is. Yeah. Like, so let's, and when, when things happen to him and he's done, it's weird, because we bring those same, for those of us who are real fans, you still have that same feeling of Earl when we see him in Kill Bill he's a little different so it's interesting and I don't know if it was intentional but he's not as surly as he will become you yeah. know what I mean like he seems to like over the movies and it's funny I don't know if you know Tarantino really had this thought out but I feel Kill Bill happens first and then Death Proof and then we get to From Dust Till Dawn and if you go in that succession Earl McGraw gets a little more surly and surly oh, yeah. you know what I mean like when we're we meet him in Kill Bill he's like oof we're on a murder scene and he's just you know by the book kind of talking about it and then when we get to his great moment in Death Proof where he you know he's talking about how he's doing it to shoot his goo like he's starting to get a little more yeah. surly and then when we get to this moment he's fucking super surly so it is an interesting progression for the character, even though we get the end first and then we, we move on years down the road. We get to see him, you know, in two more films of Tarantino. Yeah, he, he's, he's clearly seen some shit and it is it has uh, jaded him. But whether you could write that now, who knows? But it does tell you, like, like we said, it does tell you everything you need to know about El, or as El McGraw is. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, it leads me to the point that I said he there was three things he kind of missed out on. And I didn't realize it until probably about a couple hours before we did this, when I rewatched it one more time. And I was listening to the commentary, and I was watching it. You know, and Instead of listening to them talk, mm-hmm. I was kind of listening to what Robert Reed was saying, and I was watching the screen. And I thought I saw it the time before. But, I, it, I, you know, like I said, it just suddenly gets past you. But while Pete Bottoms, played by the great John Hawks, who was a very young actor at the time, before he would go on to be an Academy-nominated uh, actor. Young actor to the point that I forgot it was him. Before Robert Rodriguez settled on John Hawks to play Pete Bottoms, Tarantino regulars Tim Roth and Steve Buscemi were both approached to play the role, but neither could fit it into their schedules. He's sitting there behind the counter, obviously, doing his best to pretend everything's good. He's flipping through a wedding magazine. He's looking at women's bridal dresses. <laughs> if you, So, Earl McGraw misses the fact that this redneck hillbilly sitting behind a convenience store is looking through a bridal magazine hey, that slides by. That should have instantly been like he should. She should have made mention of that. Like that should have been one thing. Pete, you get married. You know what I mean? Like, it should have been something that he would have noticed is off. Because I guarantee he's never seen Pete look at a bridal magazine. It's like Pete doesn't look like the kind of guy who's planning for a wedding at any time soon. Yeah. So it's one of those things. Like again, it's that subtle things that you don't notice when you're watching. So you watch it over and over again. You kind of get to that chance where you start to get the detective's eye. And you start looking for things. I noticed that. I was like. Oh my god! Like it's such a subtle move. I, it's not unintentional. I do believe it's there intentionally to give off the impression that there is stress, that there is something going on, that a man yeah. that we see we would never imagine would be looking at a bridal dress. You know what I mean? He would not be looking at bridal yeah, dresses to, to, to act nonchalant and normal. He's got, he's grabbed the closest thing to him to make it look like he's. It would be either a bridal thing or reading something upside down. I think would have been the the go to for kind of that kind of thing. Yes. Yes. But yet I I, I didn't um I didn't clock that either. I know he he obviously look when you're watching it again, he's obviously kind of a lot very jittery and, you know, nervous. 
he would have gotten away with it as well. He was doing. Uh, he was doing. He's doing a phenomenal. Ad- admirably, wouldn't quite say he he deserves the fucking Oscar that he uh, tells the geckos <laughs> he does. But he was he was doing a very admirable <laughs> job of uh, acting like everything was normal, apart from looking at bridal wear. I mean, I'm plan I'm pl- I'm planning a literal wedding, and I'm not looking at bridal wear. <laughs> well. You never know. You never know when you might find it's yourself not my job, man. in a moment. I'm, I'm beer, 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 beer and suits. Beer suits and bands. Beer and suits. That's like what that. we're on. <laughs> Speaking of the geckos, when they finally do reveal the geckos, and we get George Clooney as Seth. Actually, actor Joseph Pilato, known for his roles in Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and as the Dean Martin impersonator in Pulp Fiction, was originally supposed to play Seth Gecko. A pilot trailer exists to this day, featuring Joe as Seth. A lot of people listening to this will not have had the wherewithal, especially because I'm a little bit older than you, but George Clooney was known on ER. Hmm. That's where his breakout comes from. He's on ER, he's on the show, he's Dr. Ross, I believe. He is, you know, he's calm, he's cool, he, he's the he's the sexy doctor. Yeah. So everyone knows him from that, and you know, now people know him as a great actor, and he's obviously branched, but this is the moment in time that pushes him forward. This is his star trajectory. He only got paid 250000 for this, which now, like, I think he farts in Japanese commercials for for more. Yeah. He makes way more in those little espressos commercials, but it's this moment. Like, he was such a fucking cool badass in the film. Like, you know you're not supposed to be rooting for them. Like, he's like one of those, I don't want to say original, but he definitely falls into the pantheon of the anti-hero that you're rooting for, because you're just like, he's so fucking cool. Yeah. Everything about him is fucking cool. The way he holds the gun, the way he says things, everything about him is fucking cool in this movie. Before George Clooney was cast, numerous actors were considered for the role of Seth Gecko, including Antonio Banderas, Steve Buscemi, Michael Madsen, Tim Roth, John Travolta, Christopher Walken, Jeff Goldblum, James Woods, and Robert De Niro, all passed because of scheduling conflicts. The only outright decline was Travolta, who said he had no interest in doing a vampire movie and instead chose to do Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I mean, and anyone who can pull off those tattoos as well. Like, you know, it's someone, someone has got to be yes. a very high level of badass to pull off those fucking tribal tattoos. In fact, it was George Clooney's idea for Seth to have a tattoo, having just seen the 1994 crime drama Once Were Warriors. Did he start the craze for those? Because those those were everywhere for a while. You know, he might have. I mean, he might have because... Because there's a lot of faded ones. He got it from a different movie. Yes. And again, it worked because you only see it coming out of the neck for the entire movie until the end when he finally takes off the suit coat and then you see the full thing. I mean, to know that you're only going to see this on the side of your neck for like, you know, for the most of the film and then all of a sudden you're going to see this full arm tattoo. It's a really cool little like nod. And I don't remember in in the Ocean's Eleven Hmm. movie. But Brad Pitt has a tattoo that comes out underneath his coat on his hand, which is, I think is kind of similar. Yeah. Watch it on his right hand when he's eating. We never see the full tattoo that I can remember. I wonder if it's a similar vibe he got because George is obviously in that movie. But, you know, like I said, you just see George's neck tattoo for the majority of the film, and then we get the full arm. And I just wonder, and I have nothing, I should have looked this up because it's just coming to me as we're talking. Yeah. But. Brad Pitt has the same, like a little tattoo. I don't know if it's tribal, but it comes out and it goes by his thumb. And it just peeks out on his hand. So obviously it's something that comes down his arm. And then I don't remember him being without a full shirt on. Like he's not shirtless. He's not ever without like a suit coat. Not looking like he's a part of the Rat Pack. You know, so I don't know. If he's done the same, but it's another cool little nod. And I, I don't know if it was George who helped him with that I mean, or not. it's the kind of thing those two would do, really. Talking like we're friends with them. It's the kind of thing Brad does all the time. Oh, but, we, uh, well, we don't want to tell our fans how much we yeah. are with them, but it's fine. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't even get me started on George. I believe we're going to be in Lake Cuomo <laughs> with them next weekend, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ask some Brad. It's going to be delightful. But yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, Seth is, for all, like like I said, I know he's a, he's a sociopath and he's, 
does some very fucked up things in this scene. But he is so cool. Like, proper... Which, again, is kind of the whole feel of the film. Like, proper B-movie action hero. Like, cool. Which I think is a very specific kind of uh, character. But almost... Almost, like, it's like a B-movie, but almost like A-list. Like, mm. he's so cool. Like, he, he's not doing... There's no fucking bullshit catchy phrases. You know what I mean? Like, stick around. Or, oh, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. I'll be back. That kind of shit. He's just, like, fucking cool in the essence of, like, uh, Charlie Bronson kind of cool. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, you're like, God damn, that dude is... Like, just cool. Uh, even early um, Eastwood in the... When he was in his westerns, like, that kind of cool. Like, the movie could be shit, but the whole time you're like, that's the coolest motherfucker in the it's, room. You know? Yeah. Like, you're just like, God, it's, he's... It's confidence and intelligence that you can back up, which is, I think, that what kind of makes it work is that he is very... And again, this is all stuff you learn in this nine minute scene you learn that he's yes stu- clearly very very clever he's very very confident and he's very very dangerous yes which is uh and, and, and then when that is all packaged into george clooney you're great yes that's yes. uh that's 90s pop culture done yes and i also think that like you're saying but i think what also makes him cool is you know, all great heroes have to have like a bit of a kryptonite. Not necessarily means it's going to bring down their doom, but it's something that we notice is a flaw for mm. them. And his is obviously the love of yeah. his brother and trusting his brother way too much. His brother, they almost opens fire right out the get go. So we learn that, especially at the end, that they were just supposed to go in there to get fucking a map. That Richie's the reason they take the two girls hostage, and then also the cop shows up. Richie's the reason they end up shooting. He, he just shoots the fucking cop. Richie's the reason the whole thing goes down. If you're Seth, at what at what point do you finally go? Richie's a liability, and you either I don't say kill him, or you either kill him or or cut him off. Like at what? Po- Actually, let's be honest. You have to kill him because we notice later when they start arguing in the thing. Like Richie's not a guy to back down sometimes so if he thinks his brother's wrong sometimes he, he he suddenly gets a wild hair up his ass and he decides to challenge him on it and a lot of times he doesn't but a lot of times he does yeah at what point like again we know the the length of the movie we know what happens because for me there was a moment there where for me it would have been when he killed the girl at the, at the motel i would have killed him right then and there like because that yeah I, I might be able to survive the the shootout in this scene but that's the moment where it's like, okay, this we get to Mexico. This isn't America. Mexico, there's some hombres down there. They're not going to put up with this shit. This is going to get us both well, that, killed. That's, yeah, that's the thing. So like, assuming we're just sticking to the length of the film, because the real answer is probably I would have ditched him a while ago. First, th- this scene would be like the final, you know, it's the second strike, right? <laughs> it's, uh, okay, all right, this is, we managed to get out just but we have yes. a lot of dangerous shit we're doing. Yeah, so for me, it would be the hotel as well. Because you're knowing that, right, I'm going to go off to this biker bar to meet these other gangsters who are supposed to be helping mm-hmm. us. If he pulls something like this there, we're yeah. dead. And then, we you know, we hear that, like, the El Rey is supposed to be, like, the word, you know, in the mythology of it. And it's used in more mm-hmm. of Rodriguez's films. But El Rey is supposed to be, like, this place, and it comes from a story, The Getaway, where bank robbers hide out down there. And then, but you're living in the seedy yeah. element. Richie's gonna, he's gonna get, he's gonna, yeah. the whole thing's gonna go fucking. Well, it's also you can't, um, you, you kind of, if if you're dealing with somebody like this, and I, I, you know, you kind of have to be a bit shuttered with how you're viewing it, right? Like, like, so we we learn he is uh, basically a sexual predator. You know, he's he's been um, done for all of that stuff. Yeah, I think they show it on that. Yeah, one. they show his. Yeah, uh, he's a this, he's a sex offender. What he does in the hotel shines a massive spotlight on that. So you can't, assuming you have to hide from that norm, like, you know, you have to pretend that's not a thing to convince yourself your brother's salvageable as a human being. Having that in front of you is just like, ah, well, you're not, are you? You're, you're clearly a piece of shit who's going to get yourself yeah. or me killed. So yeah. I'm off to El Rey with all this money. 
<laughs> yeah, a good. And my my guest Pat, he I mean he he made a good point. It's his brother. He loves him. You don't you know you don't. And this is I, this is obviously what <laughs> Seth does because he's not like you and I. So Pat's probably a better human yeah. being. I'm just, I'm, I'm just hoping my, we yeah. both have just realized Pat is a better Pat. You, I know you're listening to this. You're a better human being than both myself and Ian. We would have killed uh, Richie early on, like right away. And you would have you you're a good guy. You would have you wouldn't have backed down on your brother. So I give you credit there. But I I come back from that, especially after the day this that just. Happened. Happened and that can't like that's a step too far for me. Yeah, but because Richie's the reason we have this shootout, and I thought it was great rewatching. I was like, wait a minute, Ian and I just had this conversation on Pulp Fiction, talking about is it divine intervention or really bad <laughs> shooting? And once again, uh-huh. we get a chance to see it may very well be very bad shooting because both P and Seth they can't hit each other for shit. They are just firing away at each other, moving, and no one gets hit with bullets at <laughs> not, all. Not even. Diving or running, just like kind of striding <laughs> just, yes. sideways with the gun yes. out, and yeah, yes. I um, soon as I saw that, I said, yeah, one of them would be dead. Like one of them, one of them immediately would have uh, gone already. Well, again, it, it could go with what we're saying, though. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like they're they're both running, they're both shooting. It's not, you know, it's not like they're standing, they're taking aim, and it's just they're, they're wildly firing, you know. And and you can pull bullets. I just, it was just, I was like, ding! I was like, oh my god, this is the perfect <laughs> guest to have on because we just had this conversation, basically both recording wise. By the time people listen, to this about a month and a half ago, and it's like, nope, this is exactly the yeah, way, exactly the, the way, way we think. I think, I think it was not divine intervention. It's just really shitty shooting from people who are really scared and we're not paying attention but i feel bad for pete bottoms i'm not gonna lie poor pete he did such a great job and fucking richie gets him killed and i mean he shoots him through the hand which is pretty fucking cool yeah like i I think he was he he shoots him in the hand after getting shot as well which is like he he gets his like second wind because i can't like is it i can't remember if it's seth or richie who just very nonchalantly shoots him behind the counter richie shoots everybody so as the scene goes, he comes back out of the bathroom. We've just had uh, Seth has just, you know, basically told, you know, Pete that yeah. he thinks that he's in cahoots with the cop. It's no, he comes here every day, takes a piss. You know, I'm doing the greatest thing I can. And then Richie leans in and we don't hear anything from him. He just whispers at first. Great character yeah, choice. Because yeah. now we know that something's going on with Richie. And when he does that, did you signal the cop? And so they have this whole big back and forth. So right off the bat, we know that Richie's full of shit. Like, like you said, we get a lot of information right but off the bat. Seth. Seth knows Richie's full of shit as well. I think he does too. For me, Mm -hmm. my interpretation of how he's asking it is he's asking it, it's basically pantomime, right? It is just a play for Richie to see that he's asking him. It's like, did you... There yep. we go. Look, he didn't. We're all good. Well, also, he's put in a tough position. He's put in a position where he now has to be on his brother's side because they're in this heated moment. Mm-hmm. You, you don't want to show that, you know, that you're not a united front, even if the other person's wrong, especially in this kind of a moment where Richie may be lying, but Seth has got to take his brother's side because he also knows Richie's volatile. He knows. Well, and he's got no one else at this point. No one else. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, well, that's knowing yet because we'll find out. But Richie's volatile. So if he doesn't feel like his brother's on his side... It's just going to start like mm. it does later in the film. And so Seth is probably like, I, I, we just got to get out. Yeah. We got to get through this. And maybe we'll get through this without anything. But yes, Richie walks up behind Earl, shoots him in the fucking head, then shoots him on the ground. And then he has the whole thing about he he's singling the cop. He goes, I deny you're a fucking lying. And then as soon as he said that, he, Richie just shoots me. And that's when Seth's like, what the fuck yeah. are you doing? Like Seth, I rewound that scene a fair amount of times because he says that he mouthed help us. And I was like, right. Well, let's fucking see, shall we? And just kept rewinding to it. And to be fair, the shot is on um, Earl the whole time. So so we don't know. Te- uh, great exactly choice. when he would have said it, you can't actually see if he does. 
I don't think he did because Richie's a psychopath. Well, here's what you're saying, though, too. Because of the shot, it's the reaction from Earl, right? Yeah. Earl shows no reaction at all, has no idea. When he walks in, that's another thing I almost forgot. When he walks in, there are two people off in the corner. We see the girl. We don't really see well. It's a great job of blocking yeah. it so we don't know who's in there. So we can get the reveal later. But he doesn't even go and look at the, you know, he knows there's suspects out there. He's missed the car. He's missed the two fucking blow-up dolls. He doesn't realize what's his name's looking at wedding dresses. He doesn't take the time to go see if there's, you know, who these two people are over in the corner that he can see. But he has no reaction to Pete saying anything. You know, he is buying everything Pete's saying. Like, he just, you know, Pete, to us, we know Pete's a little nervous, mm. especially after we get yeah, to see George yeah. Clooney. But in this moment, so I, I agree with you. I don't believe he said it at all because there's zero reaction from Earl McGraw that he said. If, even if he had mouthed it and he wasn't paying attention, he would have said, what's that? You know, he would have asked him a question. Yeah, yeah. You know, because not everyone no, can read Exactly. So. Like, he, he hasn't proven himself competent enough a law enforcement agent that he would be able to like you you have some like uh, usually in like thrillers where the police you know they pretend they haven't noticed all the stuff but again all yes, that we've yes. learned in the four or five minutes up to this point is that this guy just cares about drinking and pissing that's it <laughs> that is his and eventually Eventually getting some and eventually on them boys. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I do love the ending. It's very, very apropos. It's very funny. Again, it, we should know there's a horror element, and it's one of the more, like you said, B movie mm-hmm. moments in the film. Is after they shoot Pete, and then they shoot out the, you know, they shoot out the bottles behind him, and George Clooney sends the flaming toilet paper onto him and sets him on fire. And then all of a sudden, yeah. Pete, then Pete rises from the, <laughs> like a phoenix from the flames, should be dead by now, firing the gun, and they're shooting at him. They finally get him. He finally falls over, but he falls into like this giant display of popcorn, which I just thought was like a fun little, you know, it's a fun little now because now you see him dying and there's popcorn popping at the same I, uh, fucking time, which is just a little ridiculous. I have that in my notes as best use of popcorn since Troll 2, which... Uh, it's fantastic. And rewatching it, like you said, rewatching it back, if you notice again when they're standing there, I think when they're arguing with him, you'll notice that the first row of the shelving you can see from Pete's perspective is fucking box popcorn. Like how much popcorn? They're selling popcorn and blow up dolls and beer. That's about all this fucking place has. It's magazines, beer, popcorn, and blow up dolls. It's like that's what Benny's World of Beer. Yes. I think it was what it's called, right? Yes, Benny's World it was of Beer. Gonna, if you don't do what we say, it's going to be Benny's World of Blood. Yes. Which is. I thought uh, I was the cheesiest line but when he delivered it it's not that bad you know what i mean like the way clooney delivers it you're almost like that's kind of badass but anyone else delivers it like if it was done by schwarzenegger it's benny world of blood you know what i mean you'd be like it it takes uh, it it needs that kind of like that level of kind of commitment to it i think rather than because it's not it's not self-parody either which kind of arnie arnie now would really lean into the fact it's a shit line. But yes. because George Clooney seems to actually be, Seth actually is threatening the guy and <laughs> believes what he's saying. It's like, oh yeah, sure, I'm going to do everything you tell me to. <laughs> oh, that was great. And then it ends with the great, took three takes, but it's a handheld tracking shot of them walking backwards out of the store as the store goes up and explodes and shit's just flying at them. And they're completely ignoring it. And they're just having this argument about all we have to do is go get the fucking map. What part of low profile don't you understand? It's <laughs> the disappointment in his voice. Like he, he's got the, yes. Seth has the tone of someone who's like kid has just caused a scene at a shop or something. Just like every time, like yes. yeah, <laughs> I'm not annoyed. I'm disappointed level of, uh, 
commitment to it. Then Richie, as the kid, has that same reaction of like a kid who's done mm. something stupid, caused their own injury, now bitching about yeah. the fact that you don't care that they have an injury. It's like you wouldn't have a hole in your hand yeah. if we just grabbed the fucking maps and this left. We, none of this would have happened. I like, could trust you why to be you in the car sympathy? by yourself. Because you pull <laughs> shit like this all the time. Yeah, like they had to go yeah. together. Like it's weird. Like he sends him in to get the map, but he went in with him because he knows <laughs> that he can't trust him. He knows that it, we probably would have just, he would have been sitting in the car and the whole thing would have been exploding when he comes out anyways. Uh, it's a great fucking opening scene. And it sets us up for the turn that we're not seeing <laughs> coming down the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of this great opening, we are sold on these characters. George Clooney, we're just like, wow. He is as mesmerizing as a badass as Mr. Blonde was the first time we get to see him in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Think of all the other characters. We've got some cool characters. When we meet Vincent and we meet Jules, they're cool. They're cool as ice. We get to see them become badasses. When you get to meet, like, uh, Mickey Knox, that's a different, that's a different, that's a psycho. That's a different kind of meeting or person. But even Clarence in True Romance, very kind of cool kid when we first meet him, doesn't become the badass he is till later. Mr. Blonde and uh, Seth are the two guys we get to meet in the Tarantino universe early on that are just pure badasses from the moment they walk on screen. You know, like, yeah. they're the two epitomes of, like, the Tarantino level badasses you know you, you instantly they're, they're the characters who feel like they've had like this scene feels like it's the last scene of another movie agreed agreed and the, the same with mr blonde like they're already it's like their character development is done and we're meeting them now like it, it does feel yes. like there is while everyone else the film is about them like growing into this person yeah. well this could be <laughs> yes. I mean, and it, it would work just like a straight up you see him you know the geckos running riot through uh Texas and then ends with this scene. Like it wouldn't be yeah. wouldn't be out of I mean it even ends on a freeze frame and credits, really. Yes, uh, yes. It could be like you just turned on the movie and you're like, oh shit, this is yeah. ending. You know what that I mean? It really good. has that feel like, oh man, I've got the end. Yeah. It's so fucking good. So, so fucking good. Yeah. Well, I I, I think I, I mentioned it on uh Pulp Fiction episode because it's one of my favorite movie anecdotes, but yeah, found out a friend of mine had never watched From Dust Till Dawn and had never heard of it. And I immediately got them to watch it while I basically sat there watching them. And because I think it does such a good job of, again, this scene, nine minutes, everything you need to know. But it holds back the fact it's a fucking vampire movie. <laughs> and because it is <laughs> so good at being basically a, a traditional Tarantino movie, really... You know, it would fit into the, you know, to give Robert Rodriguez his credit as well, would, you know, fit easily into kind of like the Mariachi movies as well. So nothing suggests it's going to take the turn that it does. And I think that is, it's just a testament to kind of the strength of scenes like this. Because usually I, I've seen film like horror movies before where it takes a turn and it all goes to hell. But like the quotation marks normal scenes aren't actually that good like you get what i mean like it's the guy was very good mm -hmm. at doing horror and he had to kind of piece together the build-up to it <laughs> yeah i could watch a film which is just either the first half of this movie extended to a full film or the last half of this movie extended into a first film uh, full film i think it starts in this scene like this scene weirdly for a film that then turns into vampires perfectly sets out everything like the tone is there you fully understand the main characters that are involved and it's just it is so well put together
And that will do it for this month's Bible study. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Ian Harries of the podcast Nobody Asked For, for joining me this month. As always, I had a blast shooting the shit with him about his love for Tom Brady and this action-packed scene in From Dust Till Dawn. So be sure to join me again in two weeks as Ryan Rebalkin, host of the Rocky Series podcast, the worst of the best podcast, and It's a Long Road, the Rambo Series podcast, will join me to discuss Tarantino's Elmore Leonard adapted crime drama, Jackie Brown. Now, you can find the link to the podcast no one asked for, as well as the show's socials and website in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials, which can also be found in the show notes as well. So until next month, this has been the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.